0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Society for Armenian Studies podcast. My name is Vara Ketsamanyan, and I'm a PhD student at Princeton University. Today, we have with us uh, Tolin Nalbandian, who is currently an assistant professor of modern Middle Eastern history at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Her research and teaching interests include Armenian communities of the Middle East, Middle Eastern diasporas, The Contemporary History of Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey, and How Marginal Members of Society Use State and Local Power in an Effort to Claim Political and Social Agency. The topic of our discussion today will be her forthcoming book, which is actually coming out this month, Armenians Beyond Diaspora, Making Lebanon Their Own, published by University of Edinburgh Press. So welcome, Solin. Thank you for accepting our invitation.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: So uh, let's start by the general framework of of the book. First of all, congratulations on the book. Thank you. As as you describe it in the introduction, this is a story of empowerment and creation rather than loss and decline of Armenian communities. How does this shift in the perspective change, if at all, the narrative of modern Armenian history, and does it complement the conventional narrative or presents a break with it?
1: Yeah, um, thank you for the question. Um, I think that you know I'm a little suspicious of gigantic breaks, and um, I certainly wouldn't, um, you know, uh, presume that I have the answer to make that break. But I think that my work um, contributes to sort of newer scholarship that has been published. I would say like within the past few years, um, that does veer from the traditional mainstream. Um, you know, uh, message of Armenian studies, that is, um, you know, more that to look at sort of additional micro histories, uh, micro stories, um, also sort of looking at the more specific at the everyday. um, And that is not specific to my work. um, And it's not even specific to the field of history, but I would say it's sort of more part of this, what I'd like to say, Newer scholarship or reconsideration of scholarship that opens up, um, I think, opens up Armenian studies to connect it also to other fields as well, right? So I think it's part of a larger trend. I would say that's super exciting, actually, for me to be a part of.
0: So, in what sense do you use the term "beyond diaspora" here? Do you think the two narratives are mutually exclusive, or it's a, it's a kind of a different framework? It's yeah. Just- Trust me how you use the term beyond. In the, you know, in the-
1: um, initially, uh, this has a little bit to do with the genealogy of the book and how it sort of came together. So um, initially, I almost um, artificially wanted to work against the concept of diaspora in order to really focus and center Armenians within Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And I think that as I got deeper and deeper into the work, I realized it's not so um, crisp, the the differentiation between being a diaspora or or not. Yeah. Um, And I think that from there, I sort of wanted to contribute to other scholarship also in diaspora studies that's far less traditional now than it used to be, um, that's using different forms of definitions to identify a dia- as a diaspora as well. So I wanted to contribute to that, but I there was an ideological component as well, which was to demonstrate that Armenians really created a foothold and were, you know, a part of this constituency of Lebanon just as much as anyone else was because I wasn't finding them there in the historiography. Mm -hmm. So it was about beyond diaspora. So speaking back to diaspora studies, but also to, you know, general Armenian and Lebanese historiography that didn't place them there, you know, as, as you know, or, or if they place them there, they place them there in specific ways, which was either as victims, um, you know, v- victims of genocide, or as um, refugees, which meant they were temporary, but that's not what my research was showing, that they weren't temporary, and they certainly weren't victims. Um, or if they were victims, they weren't only victims. Um, so that's where, that's where I was trying to go.
0: Well, you, ma- you mentioned an inter- interesting point about Lebanese history, and in, in the introduction, you claim that Cold War-related nature of inner Armenian events and their place within the broader history of Lebanon and the Middle East has been ignored. This is this is you have in the uh, in the first yeah. few of the introduction, if I don't, if I don't, if I'm not mistaken. So why is it so? Why is it that the Armenians have been ignored in Lebanese historiography? Or the specific perspective on Armenians having a foothold in Lebanon has been ignored? And and in what ways does the work fill that gap?
1: Yeah. um, So I should preface this by saying, I don't think it's only Armenians that have been ignored, Mm -hmm. right? There are other marginals that have been ignored. So I wouldn't, again, like, I'm just suspicious of putting work on a specific pedestal, right? But, um, but given that Armenians definitely have been ignored, I think, in historiography. And I think for, um, a few reasons, and of course it depends on who's writing the history. Um, and I say that because I think it's also been ignored by Armenian historiography too. Um, but I think it's been ignored by Lebanese historiography, I think, to, um, Further perpetuate, you know, sort of a a self-referential um, uh, corpus of material that is invested in demonstrating that Lebanon is weird, like an abnormal state, as if there's a normal state for it to aspire to be, as if there's such a thing, um, and to demonstrate that it is, you know, um, in con- you know consistently in conflict by specific inhabitants and Armenians don't really easily fit into that narrative because while there have been conflicts that I talk about in the book, they are not part of this, you know, um, general civil war conflict that a lot of historiography ends with, right. Or begins with, uh, with Lebanese historiography. So um, it doesn't fit that neat box. And so they're left out. Yeah. Um, or if they're like I said, if they're brought in at all, they may be brought in sort of introductory, you know, to talk about oh Armenians were refugees, too. And sometimes it's used to juxtapose the position of the Palestinian refugees, that they were the original refugees. And then the Palestinians came and took over that. But and they usually use that to demonstrate like how Palestinians haven't assimilated, um, not taking into consideration why historically they weren't um, allowed to, I would argue, assimilate, but. Um, so I think it just fits the bill um, of a specific narrative that has been um, forwarded. As for specifically Cold War history, mm-hmm. why they're not really written in? I think a lot of micro histories aren't written in in Cold War histories, and preference is given to like this larger, um, more traditional—you um, know—either your pro-American or your pro-Soviet bifurcation, which is a little bland. Um, And also the Armenian case doesn't fit perfectly within that because it could be both at the same time. So that's also another reason for it to be maybe left out, right? And it may not serve, um, again, traditional Cold War histories to look at sort of a community that's using the Cold War and the powers within it uh, for their own means. Um, and, And again, I don't think that this story is a I think it's exceptional, but I think it's one of many exceptions. Like, I think you can find other stories that haven't been placed in Cold War histories that I think would be really, really interesting and really open up that field as well to a less, you know, so- something more um, exciting. And I think people are doing it more and more, you know, in, in in all three fields that I sort of try to tackle in 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 this book.
0: And I'm just curious, do you think one of the reasons why Armenians have been left out from this general history of the Cold War, or Lebanese history in particular, is the way they describe themselves. Maybe there's a shift in the way Armenians are describing themselves in the 1940s and of course in the, let's say, 1980s and 1990s. For example, in the 1940s, they're using the term Birkahay more then they would use probably in the 1990s or early two thousand. They would use the term Lipanan Mahai. So, is the, do you think there's a reason behind this, or like the shift has also impacted the way Armenian perceives Armenians perceive themselves in Lebanon?
1: Yeah, you're saying like from the inhabitants themselves. Yes. Right, not but, from historiography.
0: Yeah, for the second generation, third generation.
1: Yes. Um, I think, um, look, I think there's a lot at stake um, with uh, with identification, right? And, um, I certainly think it could be forwarded by the inhabitants or or rather it could be reinforced by the actions and, and, and conversations of the inhabitants themselves. But I think at the same time, if you sort of study those conversations and sort of look beyond them and look at them in the, the larger sort of conversations that are happening within the press at the time, it's not that, So even if they're saying more high rather than lipanahai, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are not actively acting as lipanahais, Mm -hmm. right, in that time period, even if they're not using that term, right? So I think that you could say that, oh, it's because, well, they demonstrate, they describe themselves as that, but let's go beyond that and see sort of what other actions they're engaged with besides just that term that actually may be at that time was high, but actually was... Correspondent to Lipanahai, maybe. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think that, you know, even if, even if you are basing that type of um, constraint on the actions themselves of the members of the community, I think that's also constraining. Because I think that that's not exactly what the members of the community were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, or it's not only what they were doing. Yeah. Let me say that.
0: And do we know when the term Nipananahai actually comes up in the in the newspapers or in the public discourse? Because especially in the nineteen thirties, forties, regional identities, regional meaning from Cilicia or from Eastern Anatolia were very strong and people identified with those regions like Gesaratsi, Antepsi, Maraschi. So when does the term nipanana actually comes out in public discourse? Well,
1: what's interesting actually is that this, what you just said, like, that's not the, the words that are used in the press at the time. I think that's more oral. And that would be also interesting, actually, because that's not something I really um, did. Uh, but maybe if one juxtaposes, like, what's written in the press and what's said in the oral, and and do they correspond with each other, even if they're using different terms, or do they not? I think that would be a really interesting study. Um, because in the press they're more using lipana high already, mm-hmm. or lipanansi, just plain and simple, or just high, right? And at different moments, all of those terms mean different things depending upon the context of the conversation or the debate that they're engaging in. But it would be interesting, like this Gesaratsi and Marashtsi. You hear that still now, and I don't Mm -hmm. know even, like, I would be really interested in thinking about, like, what does that even really mean now, let alone then, because it's not really appearing in the press as such. Mm -hmm. You know, it's saying that, like, sometimes what you will see is, like, uh, say, like, when you're reading about, um, you read it a lot in the articles having to do, covering repatriation, Mm -hmm. that... People identify as they are, I mean, this is all uh, what the reporter is reporting, that at the registration centers, people are uh, identifying themselves as from specific towns and cities back in, you know, present southeastern Turkey or south-southeastern Turkey. So they'll say like, uh, but they won't say, I'm Gesar they'll say I'm, you know, yes, Gesar which is mm-hmm. the So that's also interesting. The reporter didn't... I don't know what they said, but the reporter did not uh, state that they said gesaratsi. They -hmm. would say gesar you know, or kilisenem, right? But they wouldn't say kilis tsi. So that's also something to think about. Like, who's using that? Or what does it mean? And does that mean... Does that meaning change over time? I'm sure it does, but it's not something I have really thought about to, to, I haven't, I didn't put that together actually in the work because I wasn't really working so much with the oral tradition.
0: But that's very interesting, especially given the fact that the neighborhoods, neighborhoods were actually demarcated based on the kind of the origin of those people where they're coming from. Like, yeah, they, they out to you, the Maras who had their specific neighborhoods. Totally. Just, but I think in in what ways does that, kind of overlap with the public discourse is is something especially interesting for future research. Yeah, for for sure. And in
1: in the newspapers, they're still identifying the the area of Marash, right? Like in Burchamud, they're saying Marash, they're saying Cease, they're saying, you know, Norkiur, right? But they're not then calling those people, like, you know, in, in 58, for example, when they're talking about who's being killed in these different areas, they're not calling those people Marash Tzis. They're just saying they took them out of Marash or they, you know, uh, surrounded Hajin, but they didn't call them Hajin sees. at least not in the Armenian press written, yeah? Maybe spoken, mm-hmm. but not in the written form, you know, which, which also makes me wonder, is it because it wasn't formal enough, right? You know, um, and is that too e- even sort of, too slang or too colloquial even for these Armenian papers that really only spoke to Armenians anyway. Right. But I, I don't know. That's sort of what I think, but I've had to, you know, sort of work on that
0: more. Yeah. So in what ways does, or inserting Armenians onto the this general Lebanese landscape change our understanding of sectarianism in relation to broader Lebanese history? How does the kind of the Armenian component change, if at all, the, the, the way we think about sectarianism in Lebanon?
1: Yeah, um, I think in a, in a few ways. I think that um, the first thing I can sort of see is that Armenians were just as sectarian as other inhabitants of the, you know, of Lebanon. And I think sometimes they are privileged as not being a sectarian, right? Um, And at the same time, you can see how they use sectarianism for their own, you know, power issues and internal power, you know, uh, struggles um, within the community itself. And that is not unusual, right, in in Lebanon. Other inhabitants do that as well. Um, And I think then we can also, it sort of elucidates how Armenians live with sectarianism, like sort of the, the everyday sectarianism that they inhabit um as well right and this isn't special to them but i'm saying that it has not been talked about before Um, at least in this time period Um, i think that there's some some you know some work on you know specifically within the realm of political science that talks about how armenians are engaging in the sectarian infrastructure sort of post-2000 you know post or maybe even post-civil war but not really pre um, and I think that this sort of, uh, folk, you know, clues you in a little bit on the, of that dynamic, you know, as well, you know. Um, and I think also um, there is this, uh, um, what's it called? Like sort of um, almost like a knee-jerk reaction to want to say that sectarianism is, is bad, you know. And I think that that's neither here nor there. Like I, I don't really... That's not the point. But for me, I think it's really important to talk about how people are um, embracing, but also living as sectarian beings in this state, right? Um, irrespective of if it's good or bad, you know, mm-hmm. and that's that's not special to the Armenian. So why are we, you know, why did the field, you know, in Lebanese and Armenian history, um, and actually sectarian studies for that matter, really ignore, you know, um, Armenians as as engaging with this power structure, too, right? That, you know, so, um, yeah, I think in that way, it sort of opens it up a little bit and also includes them. And, yeah.
0: So, so the emphasis of the book is on how Armenians engage in everyday politics or even the struggles in Beirut in the 1940s and 50s. So maybe you can just give us a a few examples of how those struggles actually shaped the community and or had kind of larger effects on on the Armenian dynamics in the 1940s or 50s. So what were the struggles or the daily problems that the Armenians were actually having or engaging with?
1: Um, Yeah, so um, I guess um, I really focus on maybe three or four um, events in Lebanon. But before I really get to them, I talk about you know how um, Armenians came to think of themselves as citizens in this post-colonial state, not really focusing through an event per se, um, or a single event. So how they talked out and hashed out how um, different political parties imagined what an Armenian in Lebanon was supposed to look like. And it changed and it really depended on the moment. Um, and, you know, how they were supposed to act, how they were supposed to be Lebanese. What was the definition of a good Armenian? What was the definition of um, a good Lebanese? What did they owe the state? Some, so, you know, some talked about that. What was their relationship to, you know, Arabs? Um, and so these are the types of issues that were clearly, and what's the relationship to Arabic, right? What's the relationship to Turkish language? Um, so these are the types of issues that were clearly spoken about at that time period in, in the early 40s. Yeah. And then I talk about actual events that sort of shook the community, um, or affected the community. Um, I talk about the 1946, um, repatriation drive. Um, that was this organized transfer of trying to get worldwide Armenians to repatriate home. Um, and that home was identified by repatriation officials um, as Soviet Armenia. Um, so this was quite successful, right? Not everyone left, of course, but a lot did. So I talk about that dynamic, but the leaving of about you know, a third of the Armenian population in the Levant... Consolidated the power of the Dashnak Party. A lot of those who, you know, followers and and uh, yeah, followers and members who didn't leave. So that was a long-lasting effect that we actually still see until this day. I would argue the power of the and prowess of the Dashnak Party. Of course, it's changed and it's 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 developed in different ways due to additional circumstances. But I would say that that 1946-1949 period, you know there was a loss of, there was a loss of power in a way, because Armenians left, but it also consolidated the power of a particular segment of the Armenians that stayed, right? Um, And then I look at um, the 1956 um, Catholicos election that resulted in um, the election of of Zare, who was considered to be a fervent anti-Soviet official. Um, And I use that to talk about how different um, Armenians uh, Armenians of political persuasions um, engaged in Cold War uh, and used the Cold War in order to promote who they wanted to run the Armenian church in Lebanon, um, which was, of course, at the same time, a transnational institution. So its powers extend beyond the realm of just Lebanon, right? Um, and then I talk about the 1957 sort of fraught, uh, I would argue, super fraught and corrupt parliamentary elections. Um, and the after effects of that, which I would argue come up in the 1958 civil strife and, um, the after effects of that, uh, are still, you know, felt within the Armenian community until this day. Um, and also, um, you know, felt within sort of the larger Lebanese population as well, because one can argue that because nothing was really solved in 58, you sort of resaw the problem a few years later with the start of the Lebanese civil war. Right. Um, yeah. And I say that it's still fought. It's still felt rather uh, until this day, like I was at um, this conference in honor of Khachik Tololian a few months ago or a couple months ago at UCLA, and um, I presented part of my work there. And um, the the question and answer period came, and I was uh, asked by I don't even I don't even know if I was asked, but I was uh, confronted I might argue by a few people in the audience that um, had been there um, when I was like they were there talk they were there present about uh, for the things I was talking about, right? Um, and I realized very quickly, I mean, I realized like, this wasn't a friendly confrontation. <laughs> um, so it really is c- still something quite fraught that I think people are really uncomfortable with. Um, you know, and it's, it, it, it's good to be reminded of that because sometimes when you're doing your own work and you feel, um, you know, very com- comfortable with the material, it's still very living for uh, a people. people. Yeah. Even if you don't agree, um, which I didn't agree, this person was very, very angry that I had um, talked about Zare as being a a communist, sorry, not Zare, Vaskin as being a communist figure. And I wasn't talking about him personally. I was talking about how the press had personified him as being a, you know, an extension of, you know, Soviet communism. And this person was really, really angry. Um, So it really does matter, actually. It brought up the fact that, you know, I thought my work was the most historical, so I thought I wasn't gonna get the questions. And people on my panel were talking about something, were talking about things far more contemporary. So I thought we were gonna be engaging with these types of issues and diaspora and current, you know, situations and stuff. And instead I was confronted with a a bunch of people really angry, (laughs) Uh, you know? And I thought, oh, okay. Um, It's good to be reminded how much this can matter. Um, and that it's still in play, like the identifications are still in play and they're still fraught, you know, so it's not sort of fixed.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely, especially when you're uh, confronting episodes of violence that has not been kind of confronted in the community and has not been talked about in the community, especially yeah. in 58, the the yeah. Civil War. Yeah. But uh, the impression I got from the book is that it's structured mostly on ideological and political cleavages bec- amongst the Armenians. So I'm just wondering where class comes into the picture. Did wealthy Armenians or middle, upper middle class or even rich families think of Lebanon in different ways or how does class come into the play with ideological and political differences?
1: Um, yeah, you know, it depends on the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say that, um, with regards to say something like the 1946 repatriation movement, um, many of those who, um, well, many signed up that couldn't afford to go, right? You had to actually pay your own way to the, to, to go to Soviet Armenia. Um, and so the, the wealthier classes were encouraged to donate even if they weren't going themselves, to help those others to leave. Um, and then, of course, others sold everything um, to leave. And that's an interesting, that, that, that's, that's interesting vis-a-vis class situation in general in Lebanon, because many left um, at the same time when uh, p- poorer, more rural uh, Shia from the south were trying to move into Beirut. And so it opens up a space for them to come and move in. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of them actually, you know, ended up moving into formerly Armenian neighborhoods. And that also changes the class and, uh, you know, sectarian makeup of Beirut at the time as well. Um, So you have, uh, but I would say it was, uh, you know, it, 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 the repatriation movement didn't just speak to one particular class. It was popular amongst the classes but it was up to the wealthier class to help move these people out, which is something to think about, right? Um, You know, that they were engaged with trying to get the most downtrodden, who had nothing to lose, so they wanted to sign up to leave Lebanon, right? Um, And that also consolidated class issues after 1946. So I would argue that there was sort of maybe... Yeah, less of a, like a lot of the working class and, and middle class really did sign up to leave. Yeah. Um, and some very wealthy did as well. And they, 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 they sold like their factories and whatnot at really under, um, either they had to sell it very quickly to other members of the family. And of course, when they did that, they also sold it under value or they sold it to other, you know, non-Armenians and they had to also do it under duress. And so it was also under value. So that, there's that. Later on, um, with regards to sort of um, class issues, like in '56, um, in uh, you know '57, '58, I think we're really more looking at a general middle class story, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm talking about um, the violence, the part, the the issues of parliamentary elections, that uh, you know, speaking of, about them, the the taking over of the um, Armenian monastery um, by people who were opponents of uh, Zade's election that that was done by majority women. That's, those are middle-class women. They're not working-class women, no matter what the oppositionary newspapers call them, right? So, um, in that way, that story does, you know, um, more or less focus on a, a larger sort of middle class.
0: Yeah. And I would just like to end with one quotation, just kind of touch upon a more broader issue of how we describe Lebanese history. So on page 21 of the introduction, you claim that, and I quote, scholars have hitherto ignored everyday engagements amongst Lebanese, including Armenians focused as they have been on exploring and viewing Lebanon as conflict-prone state. Yet on the other hand, the everyday examples of Armenian politics you provide relate to internecine partisan struggles, violent or otherwise, and competition over community resources and Cold War engagement regarding issues about the church, about the Catholic state elections. So does this not, in a way, reinforce the view of Lebanon as a conflict-prone state? Because you're focusing very much on conflict itself among the different factions or groups in the Armenian community. Were there any instances of how people cooperated or collaborated in spite of the ideological or political fault lines or divisions among themselves
1: yeah so I don't know if I'm looking so much at at conflict as much as I am looking at power relations mm-hmm. um, and there's going to be conflict within the power relations right um, and yeah. and with regards to collaboration um yes like when I'm talk look when I'm talking about the 1946-1949 repatriation movement, there is collaboration. You have the Dashnak Party that supports initially repatriation. They don't like to talk about it, right? Um, that's not how they would tell the history. But in 46, you had no choice but to be uh, supportive of this movement because it was a really popular movement. Um, so at that time, you have a lot of collaboration. You have the, um, you know, the head of the Armenian Church in Lebanon going to bless these. Repatriates to leave, um, even though he would be actually, um, you know, losing his flock, losing his, in, in essence, his power with these people leaving. But there is collaboration. There is, you know, the the press is, um, yeah, supportive of this movement. Um, Same type of thing even when Vasken comes to visit Lebanon. So he's known as this, you know, later on in the press, within days, he's known as this, you know, manifestation of communism and the Soviet figure. But initially, um, he is known also, or or in addition, let me say, in addition, he's also an Armenian leader. So you see that the ARF press, um, the Dashnak press, is super excited about him. Coming, or maybe they had to be. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that he was actually popular, and they also followed, you know, um, the, the the festivities and the spectacle of of welcoming him there. So, it's not so much that there's consistent conflict. It's more that, um, you know, power struggles um, also showcase um, contention, and that is not really talked about when you are looking at Armenians only as solely as a diaspora, because it sort of flattens difference and it homogenizes. um, And you're not going to look at them as engaging in Cold War power struggles, even amongst themselves, because you're too, you know, uh, invested in looking at them either as a refugee or victim community, right? Uh, Because of, you know, a variety of ideological issues having to do, I think, connected to the recognition of the Armenian genocide or lack of recognition of the Armenian genocide. So, you know, that is what is really bulldozed. So actually that I find really constricting, um, that type of, you know, view of this activity. So the everyday activity includes, you know, how people use power and how they exercise themselves as political beings within society. And so that's really what I'm interested in looking at by, Using these few case studies, um, as well as the development of Lebanon itself as a post-colonial state, to really um, focus on um, actions, you know, and uh, everyday um, citizenship, and how that's worked out, and how that changes, and identification, and how that also changes, um, and how it, you know, is used at different times in, in order to forward yes, ideological um, programs, right? But I don't think by looking at power, uh, you're automatically looking at conflict. Or maybe you, you are, and that's what everyone's doing. So then Lebanon's not any more special than anywhere else, um, if you're going to look at it that way. you know. But, but I think that that has to do more with Lebanese historiography of how the imagination of Lebanon of needing to explain or not explain the civil war so that you consistently have to look at it through the prism of conflict, right? And e- so even if we're gonna do that within the Armenian case, we're not doing it in order to explain the civil war. So that still is something different, you know? Um, yeah, but again, I, I I look at it much more as looking at issues of power rather than looking at it as
0: conflict, yeah. Okay, Toreen, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, it's really been great, thank you.
0: And thank you everyone for following Society for Armenian Studies podcast.